Um, And I think that's the part that when we allow this simple definition of gentrification um, as if we're dismissing the institutional actions and decisions of neglect, um, fuck you, it's bullshit. When I think about the definition of a boss, one of the first people who come to mind is Malia Lazo. She can cuss about the litter she's tired of seeing on the street and then beautifully pitch your own business idea to you before you even have it solidified. That's what makes her Malia, though. She's genuine. She's informed. And she puts in the work. Hey, y'all. I'm Alexis, and welcome to The First Year Project, a podcast that highlights the good, the bad, and the integral aspects of the first year experience. Activist, civic organizer, and all-around innovator, Malia Lazu is the founder and president of Epicenter Community, a community that embodies the values of authentic diversity and the art of real conversation, while inspiring inclusive collaboration and delivering positive impact within the Boston community. Previously, Malia started MassVote at 19 years old, was a Community Innovators Fellow at MIT and the co-founder and executive director of Future Boston Alliance. On today's episode, we're talking about how she got her start in the nonprofit sector, neighborhoods, and the first year experience seeing your very own community change before your eyes. For visuals, previous episodes, and everything First Year Project, make sure to check out our website, firstyearproject.com. Stay tuned. Joy and love and mutual support. But why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage and we don't teach boys the same? So how are you, Malia? I am good. I'm so glad to be talking to you. I miss you. So this is uh, a special conversation because I think we've literally shouted you out like probably 17,000 times. (laughs) On the show with separate people. So clearly what you're doing, it resonates with people. So I just want to thank you so much for taking the time out to uh, talk to me today. Well, thank you so much. And just knowing that I've been shouted out on this show makes me feel so good. I love that your first interview with with Heather. Yes. It was like, yay. Yes, very, very dope. Um, So for those who do not know you, what exactly do you do and why do you do it? Well, I like to say that I'm an old-fashioned organizer. Um, I think a lot of people now enter the nonprofit field and don't really get a chance to organize. Um, and so what I do is is I really go, I, I go to communities and I become, um, I, I put myself in service um, of them. And I started this when I was 19. Um, I started my first nonprofit really helping to get the city of Boston and then the state of Massachusetts um, to vote. Mm-hmm. <coughs> But um, the why I do it, I think, comes from this real um, yearning in me for when I see, like, unfairness or injustice. Like, I'm not one of those folks that um, just says, oh, well, that's the way it is sometimes. Um, I, I I normally get really infuriated at it. Um, the older I get, I can stay a lot more calm, but um, especially when I was younger. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I do. I, I go around and I just try to um, find justice where there is none. 
Very, very dope. Now, what was your upbringing like? Uh, you have actually a very interesting story, so I'm excited for you to share. But what was your upbringing like, and how would you say it's impacted the work that you do today? Um, so, yeah, I was, I'm one of the lucky people to have been born and raised in Hawaii. Um, and that was, uh, you know, I, I think a great saving grace. I mean, I think that there's a reason why our first black president is, is also from Hawaii. Mm, um, sure. And it's because when you grow up in Hawaii, as a person of color, you're not raised as a minority. Mm. Um, so, you know, while you might not be the majority, um, and in Hawaii, it's actually interesting because it's more of an Asian um, race hierarchy. Really? You could say, yeah, with like um, Japanese being more of like the white, you know, meaning like the attorneys, the doctors, the da 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 The elite. The elite, unquote, right. Yeah. You know, and, and not that we don't have white people, but white people are actually prejudiced. Preju- they have prejudice against them. That is so interesting. Um, in, in the state, yeah. So, like, the last day of school in Hawaii is called Kill Howley Day, and Howley is the word for white people. Oh. Um, and, like, back in the 70s, like, <laughs> white people would get beat up. Like, oh, my God. Like, um, and so, you know, Hawaii became a state in 19... 19- 53. Um, and so the idea of colonization is still very fresh. Mm. Um, and so you learn about America from the from the voice of the oppressed and the colonized. Um, I think we're far enough away from the United States that we didn't really have to buy into um, this idea of manifest destiny mm. for for America because we were living in a state that no longer had any of its indigenous people because of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was very fresh. It was very fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, there's people alive remembering when America brought the tanks throughout the streets and and all of this kind of stuff, right? So it, it, it was very, very fresh. Um, and so I think being raised in a place like that really, as a person of color allows you to find your own power and your own agency. Um, It's not taken away in the same way that it is here. Mm -hmm. So that's really where I think a huge part of my my understanding of what's right and and what we deserve uh, and and the the importance of the history of what has happened. Um, That really pushed me, I think, to to get into um, you know, this idea of change work and then I also come from a political family my Mm. um, my family loves politics we love to fight about politics we love to call each other idiots about politics Um, so you kind of have to like come correct and like okay. know, know how to fight, you know, like if you're going to yeah. say your words. And so my grandfather, who is um, was absolutely the just the love of my life. And he was this, you know, Republican, like he used to call Ronald Reagan St. Ronnie. Oh, um, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is like my grandpa, the love of my life. Um, and but, you know, but what it did, even though. I disagreed with a lot of um, what he said. Uh, what it did was it provided a space to talk about this in the home, you know. So we all voted. Yeah. We all did some type of volunteer work. I mean, it wasn't just voting, but um, you know, my grandmother volunteered um, teaching English as a second language and teaching people how to read. She was also um, a librarian. My grandfather was a volunteer fireman. Um, they worked the the voting polls um, every mm-hmm. election. You know, we just had, a, I think, a civically engaged family. 
Um, and so that also really helped me understand like the importance of community engagement and and things like that. So that's really what drove me. Um, but what got me started in non the nonprofit work was I was at Emerson College. Is that where you went to school? That's where I went to school. Nice. And um, I was first going to major in broadcast journalism. Hmm. And then quickly realized that, like, this whole bullshit around objectivity um, was just not, I didn't have interest um, in in keeping up that, you know, facade or whatever. I wanted to be like Woodward and Bernstein and just, like, take people down (laughs) um, and be, like, the watchdog, right? Uh Like, of of the the fourth estate, if you will, right? Like, the watchdog of the government. But uh, it was all about, well, three alarm fires. And if it bleeds, it leads. And so then I um, I changed my major at Emerson. They have this major uh, called um, communication, politics, and law. It's now Mm -hmm. just a political communications major. But Mm -hmm. um, I joined, um, I switched majors. And that was just the best thing that could have ever happened to me. And that's what really pushed me into, um, I needed an internship and I needed a full-time job. And I needed to go to work full-time or Mm -hmm. go to school full-time because I couldn't afford any of this. Um, as many folks know. Um, and so I really needed a paid internship, right? Yeah. Like that was going to be the best way to get this done. In uh, those earlier years when you first got started in the work that you do, what was one of the biggest challenges that you came across and kind of how has it uh, shaped who you are today? Um, that's a great question. You know, you... I guess because... Everything really came easily. I mean, I'm sure there were challenges, um, but I look back now and I'm like, as a 19 year old who knew nothing, um, I was really lucky. You know, I mean, I, I I was surrounded by by mentors who sent me to trainings, who trained me themselves, who um, we were successful in in our goals, and um, but I think the biggest challenge was figuring out what to do with that Mm. um, and live my life. Um, You know, but then as I got older... what exactly do you mean by that? Like, what to do with that and to live your life? So, you know, I... I found myself in 2002 having ran the successful organization for five years, um, you know, pretty much, and was ready to move on and wanted to, you know, live, I wanted to see what my life was and da 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 You know, I, I didn't, what I didn't realize um, was that this... This is your life, I, I and 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 maybe I'm not maybe I'm not explaining that well, but um, I basically found myself leaving this you know position that this business or this organization that I had started that was doing really well in the height of it doing really well, um, which is awesome in certain ways, um, and then I went to D.C. to pursue my career, thinking that you know you go from 
local to state to national. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had done the local and state thing. But then when I got to national, I realized that national politics is actually so far removed from anything authentic, from actual politics, from, you know, I mean, like the governor still lives in the state, right? Like people still know where, where he lives. Yeah. Um, but national politics, you know, we are all in D.C. It's incestual. It's it's you know, liquor filled, it's sex filled, it's drug filled. Um, it's people who would absolutely choose to be a rock star overdoing this, um, mm. if given the choice. And so it actually wasn't like here, I was trying to figure out how I, you know, build my career, I guess is what I meant by live my life. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, looking back at it now, there was no reason why I couldn't have stayed for a couple more years, you know, but in my mind, I was like, Oh, I have to live my life. <laughs> I I think, and I'm so happy I did. You know, I mean, I, I I think the only regret I actually have in my life, um, including like a couple of like complete explosions, you know, um, is not studying abroad when I was in college. Really? And and why is that one of your? I guess because um, at the time it seemed really expensive, um, but then you realize it was the cheapest way for me to live in Europe for three months, (laughs) and I'm never gonna have that chance again. (laughs) Um, So. So I should have taken it. But, you know, at the time I was like, oh, my God, that's another student loan. Like, I just couldn't. Uh-huh. I couldn't imagine it, you know. But that's probably the only thing that I really am like, you missed that one. <laughs> okay. So um, you do work across Boston as a whole. Uh, you do a lot of work that impacts and affects, I would say, the, the state as a whole as well. Um, but I feel like you have a particular connection to Dorchester, to Roxbury. Um, so how would you... Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan. Those are go. my neighborhoods always, always. So number one, why is that? And then how, in your own words, like how would you describe the essence of those places? Um, so yeah, so let me say that I moved back. You know, I, I left um, working for Harry Bell Fonte um, to move back to Boston to go to MIT, um, mm-hmm. but also to settle down. And I mean, this is a whole another podcast um, that we should totally talk about at some point um, with some other women my age. But this idea of when you're in your late twenties, early thirties, you don't want to get married, you don't want to have kids. Mm-hmm. There's no real model of then how to settle down. Very true. Um, and so I didn't know. So I wasn't settling down. I was in three to four cities a week. I would, you know, that there was no reason for me to build home. Um, but as an organizer, it's critical that you're tied to a city. It's critical that you're accountable, um, to, to a community, you know, to fly in and out of communities all the time can be great, especially if there's a community that you love, that you're experimenting in. Right. Um, So, um, I realized that I had to figure out my own plan for settling down because it wasn't going to be getting married and having a baby because, you know, at the time, um, and I mean, I still have no interest in, in either. Um, but at the time I knew, you know what I mean? Like I was like, even if I want this, it's not coming anytime soon. Like I don't even have a boyfriend, Never mind, like a husband and kids, you know? So I was like, what the fuck? And why, why is this? Like, why is this? I get to stop then. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, exactly. when I'm not even prioritizing that in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when I really just stopped. And I, you know, I applied for this fellowship at MIT to give me a, a way to move back to Boston because I believed in the work in here. Um, Dorchester, Roxbury and Mattapan, um, to me, 
are really, really special neighborhoods because they're they're like the the rows in the the sidewalk, right? Or, or, or whatever. Exactly the mm-hmm. the rows in the concrete. I mean they're they're given very few resources to soar. They're given very few resources to believe. They're given very few resources to hope. Um, they're living in a city that sells that brand. Um, and yet they continue to do all of those things and survive. Um, and, and in some cases even thrive, you know what I mean? Say what you want about Upham's Corner. Um, you know, it might look third worldy to you, and and it might very well be third worldy. But it's a vibrant community where every time I walk down that street, I'm saying hi to people. I'm, you know, Brenna's, Brenna's, right? Like, I mean, you're just like, it's it's a community, um, and you don't get that feeling when you're walking through. You know, when you're walking down Commonwealth Ave, um, yeah. in 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 Back Bay, and and so you know, for me, the the neighborhoods, especially those um, Jamaica Plain as well, especially the part of Jamaica Plain that's the the closest to to Roxbury. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you still have enough of you still have enough people living vehemently, if you will, um, yeah. right? That um, that that I just love. Very dope. And like the history of these neighborhoods all being in the same city, I think is just like amazing. So, so like what is kind of your connection to that history? And then like there are some folks who listen to the show who don't live in the U.S. and some who, you know, especially don't live in Boston. So can you speak a little bit to the history of those uh, neighborhoods and kind of your connection to it? Definitely. Um, so... I when I first moved here I was in um I was actually in Back Bay but this was back when Back Bay um was being built up yeah. um but then I proceeded to live in Brighton JP um I've lived in a lot of neighborhoods more most recently um I was lucky enough Actually, the only neighborhood I've, I have not lived in yet is Mattapan. And I say yet because I think that's if ever I buy a home, that's where I'm going to end up buying it. Okay. Um, but, you know, I um, so Brighton, you know, I mean, to, to talk about just a couple of the, the neighborhoods that I don't really mess with anymore for being not mess with. I mean, <laughs> that's OK. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That I that, <laughs> like the neighborhoods that could just go to Cambridge if they like. <laughs> just attach yourself to Brookline, darling. No, I mean I you know, I joke about I mean, I feel like Austin and Brighton I've outaged. Like mm. I think I'm too old. They're very like, young neighborhoods. Very young. Like yeah. I think if I go to like Austin and Brighton, I'm gonna look like a child molester. <laughs> Who's this old woman, like, looking for young meat or something? Um, But, you know, every neighborhood does have a culture and and does have a vibrancy. I mean, Brighton, right? Austin, Brighton. Um, It's young. It's, you know, if you want to go and, you know, make out with college kids, like, that's where you go. Um, And there's a great boomerang there um, and great Asian food. Um, You know, and then there's Dorchester. Um, You know, neighborhoods like Dorchester. Well, actually, there is no neighborhood like Dorchester. I mean, no. Dorchester is, 
as big as all the other you can put all the other neighborhoods of Boston into yes. Dorchester it's central I'm also completely biased because I grew up in Dorchester but right yes. so you look at your you're like, <laughs> like yes you're like yes girl you yes. better talk about Dorchester so what I love about Dorchester to me is and it's it's because of its size right mm-hmm. um, is that to me Dorchester is the is a cross section of Boston um, so it's diverse as hell I mean like you can't even you probably couldn't you would have to pick I mean, we have neighborhoods inside of Dorchester, right? Yeah. And so it's like, you would actually have to pick those neighborhoods inside of Dorchester to find, like, a majority race. You know, you'd have to be like, yes, in Fields Corner, it's Asian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Savin Hill, it's Irish or whatever. Um, but it... As a neighborhood whole, it has every one of those communities, right? Black, Haitian, Irish, um, you know, Asian. And there's like nice little, I mean, you know, and and I don't go to, um, you know, I go to primarily like the hippy dippy parts of Dorchester and then like the hoodie parts of Dorchester. Um, You know, although I've been playing tennis in Savin Hill. Um, (laughs) But, you know, but that's what I love. Like, that's what I love about Dorchester, you know, is that Dorchester to me. Like if anyone was like, I'm only here for like 30 minutes, I'd be like, great, we're going to walk down half, you know, and you would pretty much see like, this is where new kids on the blocks from. And then you end up, you know, like, um, you know, near Mattapan, right? It's like, mm-hmm. and here's this. Um, and, you know, so now Roxbury is um, another neighborhood for me that has... Um, that has a place in my heart. I mean, you know, again, it's Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan. And the other thing I should say about all three of these neighborhoods is I've door knocked the shit out of these neighborhoods. <laughs> okay, I have spent years yeah. and many campaigns um, and many voter registration drives and knocking on doors of Dorchester, Mattapan, mm-hmm. Roxbury. I mean, there, and I was never, never did I feel unsafe, never did I feel at risk. Never did I feel, I mean, if anything, um, it helped really endear me to this city because it was, it was fun. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, my personality, I also enjoy door knocking, but, um, you know, it was, I mean, you go from like the old people who are like, sweetheart, I know who I'm voting for, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but keep doing your work, Mm -hmm. you know, um, to, you know, the folks who are like, oh yeah, no, I just moved here. I don't have any, I just hardly even know anything. You know, it's like just this great, um, great these great neighborhoods but anyway Roxbury to me um, represents like our Harlem Um, and it breaks my heart that the city nor the people living nor not all the people but Mm -hmm. a chunk of the people living in Roxbury don't see it that way Mm. Um, you know and and I mean it's similar to Harlem and I'm sure if there was a Harlem expert here they could help us understand the gentrifying that's happening there now Um, you know but to see the black flight out of the neighborhood because of the chance of you know making money and and, you know and you can't knock it like that's what makes that's what makes gentrification and displacement so hard yes right is that it's like who am I to tell you that this is not your family's payday right now Mm -hmm. and who am I to tell you that you need to stay in Roxbury. You know, I mean, my my grandparents, so my grandmother just died in January. And so now we're like selling the house and everything. And for me, like this is my grandparents' house. I yeah. spend the summers there. 
So I, um, I don't want the house to be sold, but no one wants to move to Lake Hiawatha, New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where that is. (laughs) It's 30 minutes outside of New York city and still no one wants to move there. Right. It's like, so if you've spent your life trying to get out of somewhere, Mm You have kids. You don't want them to go to Boston public schools. I mean, there, there's a ton of really good reasons of yeah. why you would sell, you, you know. But I would love to see Roxbury sort of become like the, you know, the, the there is some strong. I mean, and maybe we'll see it more in Oakland, you know, just looking countrywide. But yeah, to see Roxbury really be able to figure that out because you have black folks with money in Roxbury. And that's you what do. I mean. You know, it's not like, in I mean, like, hills, yes, seriously. in those hills. And they are not selling their homes. No. They're not. No. they. And so it's like, what do we, how do, how does that anchor? Yes. A sea change, right? Mm-hmm. Now, now, part of the problem, the other problem is that, you know, the ones who don't own are being displaced. And, you know, and you do have a huge chunk of folks who are selling. And, you know, and it's like everyone's just trying to live their life, right? And everyone's trying to make the decision to on what's going to be best for them. Um, but out of all the cities I've lived and worked in, Boston... There's something about black people here in Boston. I mean, they're they're just not, they're not like other black communities. What do you mean by that? Nothing that I want to say that's going to be recorded. Um, (laughs) No, what I'll say is this. Um, Atlanta is in Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Little Rock is in Arkansas. Um, you know, these are cities, um, Chicago is in Illinois. Like, D.C. is between Maryland and Virginia. These are all cities where you can you can point at a solid black resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, a black economy of sorts, of all different sizes, right? So Little Rock is not Atlanta. Yeah. Right. Um, Detroit, too. Detroit, too. Right. And so but you also have this history of not only economic, but civic protests. Right. Like Mm -hmm. black folks, there's certain things that you just won't do in Atlanta because black folks ain't going to let you or, you know, um, or Chicago or, you know, any any one of these cities. And Boston has yet to have that moment. I mean, mm. busing Charles Stewart, those were really, you know, these reactionary um, protests and, and fights. They, the, the proactive actions, mm-hmm. um, seem to not be able to get through the gatekeepers yet. Um, you know, and I think like the youngins now, I mean, you know, if anyone can do it, they can. Absolutely. But I, the, the other thing I will say is that we're some of the most educated blacks here, mm-hmm. you know, probably some of the wealthiest. I don't know. Maybe I don't know if that's true. I might just be talking shit about that one, but <laughs> 
You know, we're definitely some of the most educated, and there's something to that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of black folks in this city have shit to lose, and Martha's Vineyard is a fun place to summer, and, you know, um, Utah's a fun place to ski, and, you know, I mean, that that life, there's a lot of black people living that life, mm-hmm. um, and, and I... I, th- th- there's a disconnect there. And I'll end. Um, please send all of your comments to Malia at epicenter, org. Um, but I'll end with this story, which is after Skip Gates got arrested trying to break into his own house. Yes, professor at Harvard. <laughs> yes. What, a few years ago? A few years ago. So yeah. he ended up getting the beer summit with Barack Obama. Uh-huh. And they... Um, and Charles Ogletree wrote a book and it was like at the Mass Minority Business Association or something like that Mm -hmm. he was doing a talk and you know he had the book and everything and so he did the talk and a hand goes up and you know the first question asked was why did you write a book you know you got the beer summit didn't you get enough attention from it why would you write a book about this wait what yeah (laughs) and now this is the primarily like black men but all black people right all black people and I'm like what and it was almost as if they were giving Tree a hard time it was almost as if they were like oh you need more money or you need more you know like yeah and Charles Ogletree said how many people in here have been either pulled over or you know harassed in some way for being in your car in your own neighborhood all the hands went up, right? And again, like these are, you know, the business owners mm-hmm. of, you know, these are the Martha's Vineyards, right? Like these are those folks, the Harvard graduates, great grandfathers being Harvard graduates, right? Like mm-hmm. ty- type of of folks. And, and they all raised their hand and he said, and how many of you guys called your lawyer the next day or called a lawyer or went down to the police station um, to explain to them that you live here and, and that you hope that doesn't happen again? Every hand went down. And he said, so if we're not willing to do it. Exactly. And he goes, and I know some of you have lawyers on retainer. You know, he's like, um, I mean, Tree was probably some of them, was that lawyer, you know, for some of them in that room. Mm -hmm. He was like, you know, you guys have attorney money. And if you're not willing to do it, then what is Pookie, what, you know, what is Pookie and Ray Ray supposed to do? Seriously. If, especially for those who may be in situations where they don't speak English. We, we have a very large population of uh, people from all different One out of places. four. Yeah. Like, like how, you, how, you, how do you advocate for yourself? In, in, in that situation. That's so, I think that's so interesting because I have thought that for several years and I honestly thought to a certain extent before I lived in LA and in New York and different places, I kind of thought that's just how rich black people were. Right. <laughs> like naturally. I was like, well, you know what? They're rich. That's just, that's just how they are. <laughs> That's what you think. But then you go around and you see rich black people telling white folks to go screw with their money. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. using their power. Yeah. Um, to, to exert that. And, you know, we we really have we have yet to see that in a truly radical form. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I, I was a part of a uh, Black Lives Matter uh, march uh, last year, and I was honestly shocked at how many youth were out there. We walked all the way from uh, the police station in Dudley towards the highway. Like we were by like like the jail to the right. Yeah, it was it was it was crazy. So with that said, I do think I was that at that folks- rally at Dudley. I didn't I didn't do the march. You know, <laughs> you gotta let us old people go home and do this stuff. We have yeah, to, no, to keep paying the bills. It, it was dope, and I had never seen that. Even with I went did all my schooling K through twelve here. I then went to college did my undergrad. So I had never seen that until two years after I graduated from, That's from college. And you know, I, I mean, even these kids now with the um, black Latin stuff, and you know what they're doing around being black and BPS. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome to see. You know, it's, awesome. it's awesome to see. So these changes are, are, are happening as someone who lives in the community, who has a strong tie and a, and a connection to the community. Like how, how do you navigate through that? I walk around and I say hi to people and I love it. Um, you know, it, it's funny because moving back to this city and when I, the, the, my, at my going away party, um, Mayor Menino, the city council. This is when you moved to DC? Yeah. The, this, this is back in 2002. Um, the state house and the state senate all declared that day Malia Lazu Day, and um, and I was sort of laughing, saying, you know, it it was because I was leaving, right? Like they were like, "Yep, good, go get out of here." And so when I came back, um, you know, I came back and I knowing that I had been gone for a while, you know, like I really just wanted to come back and be. Um, and be respectful of the work, take the two years of, you know, or a year and a half of at that point as a fellow um, to really get back reacquainted with the work and, mm-hmm. and everything. And what was so incredible was I showed up at like a couple of things and it was, you know, all the same crew and it was, you know, and it was awesome. And they're like, oh my God, you're back, you know? And, and so it was really, really great to see. And, um, you know, I came back to this city to be in service of it. And that's pretty much how I walk around. Um, personally, I, I started to become obsessed um, on something that I'm going to throw out, um, uh-huh. which is all of the litter. <laughs> Let's talk about it. And I really have to because I'm not sure. Like it's it's one of these things where first of all, there's so much litter mm-hmm. in our neighborhood, and there was this wasn't before. Really. I really don't remember. And again, maybe I was just young and you know, <laughs> so much into my own thing that I was like, whatever. <laughs> I'm like, I'm off to the next. Um, but like, and it's all liquor bottles mm. and lottery tickets. And that's what makes me the saddest. So I walk from my house, which is near Upham's Corner, yep. to Dudley every morning, pretty much. Um, to you Dudley do? Square. Yeah. How long of a walk is that? It's about 35 minutes. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It's great. And even in the winter, because once you get going, you know, you start to get that heat. But, um, and the amount of liquor and, you know, and maybe that's a thing too, because like I walk everywhere in this city. I mean, I walk from here to downtown, yeah. from Dudley to downtown. So it's a city that you can, that you can walk in literally totally. and just kind of take in different environments. <clears throat> it really is. And when you're, when you're doing that, you have your music going, mm-hmm. 
you know, and this is really, I mean, I think because Boston's so walkable, it really is worth walk. I mean, like, that's how you can discover it. But maybe it is because I walk around so much. But there's just so much liquor and lottery ticket. And it's just making me feel sad because I feel like, you know, there's a ton of us or a good chunk of us that go to sleep at night. And then there's a chunk of us that sit out on the street and drink at night. Okay. And if that's what they want to do, that's cool. Um, But if they're doing it as some type of, of escapism, then those of us who are asleep in our beds need to take responsibility for that, yeah. right? And, and we need to somehow support these folks into either having beds or, mm-hmm. like, um, having the peace of mind to be able to sleep um, through the night, right? Now, again, now, if there's just some dope party that's happening in the street while I'm asleep, like, I would be bummed I'm missing it, but it feels sad. Like, when you look at our litter, like, our litter feels sad, right? Like, it feels like people with nowhere to go um, drinking themselves to stay warm. So as a resident of the community, as a community at large, how do you balance supporting that and then also not letting gentrification take that over because I mean a lot of these same communities could maybe have cleaner streets if there were people who had more money or whatever the case is or this is not personally what I think this is the argument though right, right? That, that, argument. that gentrification well it still helps so we should be grateful that it helps our communities but at the end of the day everyone is being are, are being pushed out of entire city so how as a community well and that's it right control? I mean the, the, well the first thing is that you Whenever someone brings you that false premise um, that poor people somehow don't keep clean neighborhoods, um, you should walk into a poor person's house um, because poor people are some of the cleanest people. Um, You know, it's it's where we find our pride, right, is in keeping our things clean. Um, Now, does that extend to the sidewalk um, when the sidewalk... Was it made for us? Mm. It doesn't. Should it? Okay, yeah. Let's, you know, have this larger. Well, why don't we create our society within a society of oppression? Yes, of course. But that's hard to do when it comes to infrastructure, right? When it comes to institutional stuff. So um, is there more litter or are there less garbages? Very true. Um, Is there more litter or is, you know, or, or not even is there more litter, but is there litter because of the people in the neighborhood or is there litter because this neighborhood has has had to take on certain that has had to take on people dealing with certain things mm. right so you know Wellesley doesn't have the section 8 housing or the halfway housing or the that Dorchester Roxbury or Mattapan have um, you know, if you're in a halfway house, you're figuring a lot of stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, cutting your yard is probably not on the top of your list and shouldn't be. You know, work on yourself, get yourself sober, get yourself clean, get yourself healthy, right? Um, you know, methadone clinics sit here. I used to teach uh, across the street from um, from a methadone so clinic. There's a school across Boston. the street from a methadone <laughs> clinic in this yeah. city. I mean, you know, so so... No, so you're not cleaning up the neighborhood. You're not cleaning up the neighborhood. You're stop. You're, you're no longer shitting on the neighborhood, right? Like, 
But if you just stop shitting on the neighborhood, the neighborhood itself will clean clean itself up. Mm. You know, DSNI can organize that, right? Um, urban, you know, the Urban League can organize that, right? Boston Youth Organizing Project can organize that. Just stop shitting on the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the part that when we allow this simple definition of gentrification um, as if we're dismissing the institutional actions and decisions of neglect. Um, fuck you. It's bullshit. So that's what I think about that, Alexis. To, to the dope. So <laughs> this has been dope. Uh, we are going to wrap up, but before we go, right, so if there are folks trying to get into the civic organizing and the community work, but also the entrepreneurship work that you're heavily in too like we didn't really talk much about what epicenter does but in terms of like i know i'm sorry i've just been chit-chatting no this is this has been dope like we'll add the links and all that in (laughs) the show notes um someone who's interested in getting into this type of work but who may be discouraged by whether it's family members or people being like you know you may not make enough money to support right what are some words of wisdom that you would give them pushing through the average American makes $35,000 a year you will definitely make that much in the nonprofit world so you can get off this idea of you know you're going to lose your chance of getting rich because America doesn't give you a chance to get rich so um, (laughs) that's the first thing you know Um, you only need to make $200,000 thousand dollars to be in the top two percent of this country so 98 percent of this country is never going to make two hundred thousand dollars you'll definitely you know you'll definitely be be between somewhere between thirty five thousand and two hundred thousand um working for a nonprofit. so again i think that's a false premise um Mm -hmm. that you know that the corporate world would love you to to continue to believe um but then I would say if you're discouraged because so much of like politics and the nonprofit world and, you know, all of these efforts that seem to be continuing to happen, but nothing gets better, um, then we absolutely need you. You know, I'm, I've been doing nonprofit work for almost 20 years and I no longer believe in the nonprofit, which is why I created Epicenter Community to look the way it does, you know, which is why Epicenter Community is 50% of our budget is in kind. Um, you know, I, I did these things because I feel that the nonprofit industrial complex is addicted to um, to money over mission and, and feels like, well, you know, we need money in order to do this work. Um, can you imagine if Harriet Tubman said this? Can you imagine if Sojourner Truth said this? And so that's, a, again, and that, that's a whole nother thing. But if you're feeling discouraged, then absolutely get into the work because that's why we need you. And don't join a nonprofit. Don't start another nonprofit. Just get your friends together and decide you're going to change something and do it. And if you need help brainstorming how you're going to change it, give me a call. This this was so dope. I'm going to ask you on a, on a later episode about uh, more about that nonprofit stuff. Absolutely, because we listen. need to disrupt the nonprofit model. You know, it absolutely needs to go the way of the dodo bird. Very dope. So where can people find you and Epicenter's work? Absolutely. So you can find us at epicentercom.org, um, C-O-M-M. And you can find me on Twitter at Malia Lazu or any of the socials. Um, and then we're at epicentercom as well um, on the socials. And you can um, always email me at Malia at epicentercom.org. 
Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you. I love this. And can I just say that I so enjoyed having you in our accelerator? Thank you. I mean, I, I think this idea that. is wonderful, and um, I wish you all the success. I'm looking forward to being on again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today, y'all. Shout out to Creator Kay and Andrea for our logos, production, and editing on today's episode. We're both done by myself. Major thank yous to those who have completed the survey and have shared it. We really, really appreciate your support and your love. If you haven't yet done so, um, please make sure to get the link in the show notes or via our Instagram and our Twitter. This support will really help to continue the show and we just thank you uh, so much in advance for taking care of that. Once again, you can see visuals, you can see episodes and other information about First Year Project on firstyearproject.com Once again, firstyearproject.com We'll see you next week, guys. Peace.